Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. For Christmas, anybody have any special traditions that you do for Christmas? Anybody have any you want to want to share? What, what do you do for Christmas? You know, does, did anybody have lutefisk for Christmas? You had lutefisk, Jeff. You had lutefisk leftovers the next day, and you're still leftover. That's pretty good. <laughs> When I lived in Minneapolis, we had a lot of Swedes in our neighborhood, and I got the recipe for lutefisk. You, you take a white fish, you nail it to board, you soak it in lye for, three, lye for three months, and then you throw the fish away and you eat the board. Was that what it? <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else have any family traditions for Christmas that you enjoy together? Anybody have any fruitcake? What? All right, okay. Any family traditions you enjoyed having? Anybody? Besides Ludafisk? Yeah, what did you guys do? We, uh, you do what? <laughs> it's an ornament where you hide the pickle in the tree and then you try and find it. A real pickle? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> they hide a pickle in the tree and you try to find it. All right, good. I've never heard that one before. That's fun. Anybody else have any traditions? Kevin, you got any traditions at your house besides bringing kids home from college? Michaela breaks cookies and we eat them. All right, good. Okay. Any other traditions? Jerry. Oh, okay. The Seversons made up a song for the Johnsons, a kind of Scandinavian song, huh? That celebrates lutefisk and pickled herring and all those kind of things. All right. Yeah, we have some we have some Scandinavian background to our church here. Judy, we have Dutch you have Dutch babies. What are Dutch babies? Oh, the pancakes. Oh, I'm thinking of Dutch babies. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. Yeah, right, 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 right. Apple pancake, Dutch babies. Right. Okay. All right. Good. Well, a lot of traditions. You know, we have traditions at our church. We decorate uh, at a certain time in December after Thanksgiving, and we leave the decorations up until uh, the Sunday. This will be the last Sunday, but this is our tradition. We leave the decorations at our church uh, the Sunday after Christmas. The next Saturday, uh, they will come down. Uh, we all have our traditions. Sometimes when you uh, get married and you, and you have uh, another family you celebrate with, um, you have new traditions. I know um, when Teresa and I got married and, and going to her uh, family Christmas, uh, was different than our family Christmas. It was, a, it was new traditions, the way they opened presents, the things they did. And it was fun. And it was good to have new traditions from in the traditions that, that we grew up with. Um, you know, this time of year, as we celebrate our Lord's uh, birth, uh, we're going to look today at some Jewish traditions that our Lord Jesus Christ's family uh, shared in that are n- even more than just family traditions. They, are, they were traditions that were handed down by God that he asked them to keep. And we're going to look at those this morning as we conclude our uh, thoughts on Christmas and also think in terms of uh, the end of this year and the new year to come. But let's have a word of prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for uh, the opportunity now to open your word and we do not do so carelessly, uh, Lord, we open it, uh, realizing that it is your word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, given to us, 
And we do so realizing we have brothers and sisters around the world today who uh, open this word with great danger. And Lord, we have the freedom to just come, to open it, to share it, to memorize it, to discuss it. And Lord, we thank you for that today. So bless your word now, and may your words be heard. In Christ's name, amen. So to begin our thoughts today, I would like to read a verse from Galatians. You can turn it if you like, or you can listen as I read it. From Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. The Apostle Paul writing one of his early epistles to the church at Galatia. The church is in a region actually of Galatia. And he says this. And he's talking in the context of their relationship as, as children of God. But when the time had fully come, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we, writing to the church, that we might receive the full rights of sons. We'll come back to that at our conclusion today. But I wanted to point out that that Paul says that when the time had fully come, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, the virgin birth, the miracle, the incarnation, born under the Jewish law to redeem those who lived under the Jewish law. And the end result, as the story unfolds, is salvation and the message going to the Gentile world and the church, the body of Christ, where Jew and Gentile are one, the new new people of God, that Paul says that, that we might receive salvation and the rights of sonship. And so I'd like you to go back to Luke chapter 2 that Susie read from today. This is one of the very few uh, what we call infant narratives in the Bible. You know, the Gospels are really have, have very little about the birth of Jesus. We, what we've been reading at Christmas time from Matthew about uh, Joseph and about the Magi. And Herod, and we have Luke, we have the story of uh, the birth of uh, John the Baptist and his family's involvement. And then we have the story of the announcement to Mary, and these are the birth narratives. We have one story in, uh, in Luke as well about Jesus when he goes down to the temple at 12 years old, and um, uh, we, that's the only story we, that's the only story we have really, of his, of his childhood. And so we have this little bit of information because the, the bulk of the story, once the fact of the virgin birth, the incarnation, is clearly taught, we move toward the public ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ in the preparation for his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But we do have this account that we read this morning. I would like to, and we actually, I want to show you this morning, well, these Jewish traditions, and when I use the word tradition here, I'm using it in a little slightly different way than the foods we eat, that just because our family does that, or maybe our ethnic background, or just our traditions. These are traditions rooted in God's commands to His people Israel under the Mosaic Law. So they are, yes, they are traditions, but they are also commandments. And there's really three things going on in this passage that I think are important to understand. As Paul says, he was born under the law to redeem those under the law, and eventually that salvation would come to us. So I want you to look, first of all, at Luke chapter 2, 
in verse 21. After the Lord Jesus Christ um, has been, uh, we've had the story of the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ in Bethlehem, and the story of the angels and the shepherds coming to visit. Then we move ahead to the eighth day. Now, whether they were still staying uh, at, the, in, at, the, at the stable in Bethlehem, whether they had moved into someone's house, you know, we're not given those details. But on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was named Jesus. The name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. So tradition number one that I think you, you know, is pretty obvious and one that we would understand has to do with the circumcision of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you put a, a, maybe a ribbon or something in your Bible there in, in Luke, then we'll go back to Genesis and we'll see that actually before the law was given, at the calling of Abraham and the change of his name, and the change of Sarah's name, we have the command of God for circumcision in James in Genesis chapter 17. A very important passage on the Abrahamic covenant, the, the parts of the, of, the, of the covenant that God promised to Abraham. And in, in Genesis chapter 17, in verses, we'll look at verses 9. Then God said, to Abraham, as for you, now this is, this is before the Mosaic law is given. This is Abraham, you know, 400 plus years before the Exodus. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you. The covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision. It will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male who is among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. And it's, it's so important that he goes on to say, any uncircumcised male, if any family neglects this, they will be cut off from the people because they have broken my covenant. This was the physical reminder and sign of the covenant of God with the people of Israel. And this is why when we come to the New Testament, and I know sometimes, especially for maybe someone who is maybe new to Bible reading, new to the uh, church or something, we read in, the, in Paul's letters and he talks about circumcision and uncircumcision, you know, we don't talk about those terms today of people. But in the Bible, this was the sign of the covenant. It was essential. And it's explained later on in the Mosaic Law for Israel, uh, again, how they must keep this. And if they didn't, they were, they were cut off and removed from the, the people of Israel. It was very important. And it had to take place for the, for the male on the eighth day after birth. And so on the eighth day, as the Apostle Paul told us, the Lord Jesus Christ was born under the law to those under the law according to their tradition. You remember the, you remember the movie Fiddler on the Roof? And of course the opening scene and the theme throughout this, the story is what? Tradition. And you remember why, you know, there's a line in that opening where they say, someone says, why, why do we have all these traditions? And, and the answer is, 
without our traditions, our lives would be as shaky as huh? a fiddler sitting on the peak of a roof trying to play a fiddle. Without our traditions, it's what holds us together. It's what keeps our identity. And this tradition, God-given, is the eighth day Jesus was circumcised. And the tradition also was given at that time that that is when the name would officially be pronounced at their circumcision. Abraham's, Abram's name was changed to Abraham. Sarai's name was changed to Sarah. And on this eighth day, they officially named him Jesus, which is the Greek uh, equivalent to the Old Testament Hebrew name Joshua. You've probably heard the term Yeshua uh, because there's no J sound in Hebrew. Uh, Yesu, you know, Yeshua. And so his name was Jesus, which has to do with the idea of God saves. Saved by God. God saves. So his name was given on this day. Tradition number one. Tradition number two and tradition number three are actually intermingled in this next passage. And you'd have to read it carefully to really understand. And I, I want to kind of explain this to you this morning. I know it can be a little bit, um, might be a little complicated, but I'm going to try to make it as simple as possible. Okay? Because there's really two very important traditions that take place in the next passage of Scripture, this passage that Susie read to us today. So let's look at verse 22. Tradition 1, the circumcision could have taken place if he was still at the stable. It could have taken place in a home. It didn't have to be done at the temple. Um, but you'll notice in the, when the time of their purification, verse 22, according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem. So if they're probably still in Bethlehem, which is a day's journey, you know, six to eight miles, depending on where they are. Um, from there to Jerusalem. They took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. So actually what, what Luke is recording here is sort of a, it's a combination, and he kind of mixes the, 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 the timeline a little bit here, but it's a combination of two very important traditions laid out in the Mosaic Law that Jesus' parents had to perform according to Jewish law. The first one I want to mention is, you'll notice it begins when the time of their purification had come. And this particular tradition actually applies to Mary. And now the word there is used, and it, it's, it's really just Mary. It's, it's not Jesus and it's not Joseph, it's Mary. So the word there is probably used in the sense of the Jewish context. In other words, this is something they do as Jews. Mary had to perform a rite, and if possible, at the temple, if they're in the vicinity, of purification. Um, you know, this, we, we, we know this, this story of, of the presentation of Jesus at the temple. It's part of the Christmas story. And Jesus is brought to the temple this, and, and, and to walk into the, the temple grounds 
To walk in, you know, from, from the stable in Bethlehem to the, to the temple grounds, it was glorious. Herod's temple. Herod built this second temple, it's called, on the same site of Solomon's. But Solomon's temple would have been dwarfed by this temple. It was, you've seen pictures of the wailing wall. That's just a little section of left of the retaining wall that held up the ground the temple was built on top of. And we know that this is part of the Christmas story of bringing Jesus to the temple. But when they brought Jesus to the temple, the first thing they had to be done is a purification for Mary. I'd like you to go back to Leviticus chapter 12 to see the background on this. In Leviticus chapter 12, we have, we have a, a lengthy discussion of this, and we'll just go to, to uh, verse the verse 6. When the days, this is talking about the mother after having the baby. When the days of your purification for a son or daughter are over, she is to bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a year old lamb for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a dove for a sin offering. He shall offer them before the Lord to make atonement for her, that is the priest, and then she will be ceremonially clean from her flow of blood. These are the regulations for the woman who gives birth to a boy or girl. If she, and if she cannot afford a lamb, and this is important with Mary because we see this is what she did, and you notice it's all about her. This says nothing about the husband. If she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or... Finally, the, the least expensive would be two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering, the other for a sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for her and she will be clean. So when Luke tells us that Mary, they came to the temple for their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed. Then you look at verse 24 in Luke chapter 2 where he kind of finishes the story to offer a sacrifice in keeping what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons, which of course put Mary and Joseph in the category of the, of the poorer people because they could not afford the lambs, but they would have to afford the pigeons. Um, depending when the Magi came with the gifts, if they came to the manger, and I know there's different opinions on this, and some of you have strong opinions on this, um, if they happened to come to the manger, then the gifts they brought may have provided some sustenance uh, for paying for things like this. We don't know. But they bought, as poor people, common people, they bought either two pigeons or two doves. They presented them at the temple to make Mary clean. And, it, and this took place because and any, any flow or issue of blood in the Jewish law, you become unclean. Again, you know, we don't talk about these things that much. You know, it's not something we think about and so on. But we do think sometimes, and it should occur to us, why was God so particular? Why did he, why did he care? Why did it matter that if, if you had a, a sore that bled and so on, that you were unclean? That, you know, when a baby is born, there is, you know, the water and the blood. And, it, and the baby is born that way. And, and, and the, wonderful, the wonderful miracle and celebration of new life and birth, but it makes the mother unclean. A simple act of going to a Jewish cemetery 
you are at the place of the dead. There is an uncleanness that you wash off ceremonially with your hand. Why was God so particular about these things? Why is this so important? Well, these things came to an end. We do not practice these things as the people of God today. But we do know when God called his people, when God called Israel and made them his own covenant people, his special people, he is a holy God. And it's something that we just cannot fully relate to because of our sinful condition. He is perfect, blameless, holy, and we are sinful. And God was bringing the message to them that I am your God and you are my particular chosen people. And I chose you for a reason. I did not choose you, he says in Deuteronomy. I did not choose you because you were so numerous or, or you could add wonderful or loving or, or better off than anybody else. No, he says, I chose you because I loved you. I chose to love you. Because for God's plan of salvation, that the, 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 the was clearly laid out, he chose a people. And this people would bear his name and eventually bring his name to the world and be a testimony of his love and his purity and his holiness to the world. That was the goal. That was the, the, the promise in the Old Testament. It was always going to be a worldwide thing, not just, the, not just for Israel. But because he was holy and he chose them, they had to understand that there was, there, there was a, an importance to being God's holy people. And so these things that we don't think about, that we don't think in terms of clean and unclean, were constant reminders to them daily, day in, day out, week in, week out, month in, month out, year out, year in, that they were a people who were sinful and he was holy. And so when there was a baby born, the mother became unclean. And she had to wait this period of time and then go to the temple, present an offering and she was declared clean. So that's what Mary did. And this is Mary. Mary is the one who needs to do this. Joseph is not doing this. He goes with her. And he brings Jesus with her to the temple. Why did they all go? And why did they bring Jesus? They did not need to bring Jesus to this ceremony. But they did. And the reason they did is because they were fulfilling the third tradition that needed to be accomplished with the birth of this new baby boy. And they could come and do these at the same time. I mean, listen, these people were, they were away from home. They were, you know, we know the Christmas story, how they were, they, you know, they came to Bethlehem and, they, and, they, and there was no room for them and the baby was coming. And the baby was born and they, and they ended up in a stable. It was so emergency, such an emergency and so rushed and so everything unsettled their lives, you know. And here eight days later, they have to circumcise and find a, a, a rabbi or, or priest who could be there for that. And then they had to wait and go to the temple. And so they were allowed to do the second and third tradition at the same time. And this third tradition is the one that's in the middle of this paragraph in Luke chapter 2, when Luke tells us about the purification according to the law of Moses had been completed. They took him, they took Jesus to Jerusalem, and I want you to notice, to present him, this is a different tradition. This is not Mary's purification. This is number three. They brought him as well because they had to present him to the Lord. 
And then they were quoted from the Old Testament, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord. And then he finishes the story about Mary's purification with the doves and the pigeons. And this is third tradition, this third regulation, if you will, having to do with Jesus and this poor pilgrim family from Nazareth who were still in Judea for this time, that I want you to, to realize this morning that is, that is a very important part of the Christmas message. Very important part of the Christmas message. And I want you to, um, I would like you to go back. I know we're looking at several scriptures today, but I'd like you to look back. You can keep a ribbon or something in Luke. I'd like you to go back to Exodus chapter 13 in your Bibles. I'd like you to go back to Exodus chapter 13. And while you're, while you're turning there, the, the context here is Exodus chapter 12 is the story of the Passover, which Jews celebrate every year, of course, in the springtime, even to this day. The Passover is the story, when all is said and done, where the angel of death passed over their homes that night in Egypt. And for every family that slaughtered a lamb and put the blood on the top and the sides of the doorpost, because they were, they were faithful to God's command, God told them to do it, and so by faith they did it. They offered a lamb. It cost them. It was the perfect, unblemished, most expensive lamb they had. It was a sacrifice. That's why it's called a sacrifice. Because it cost you something. And the blood was put on the door. And the angel of death passed over Egypt that night. And for every house where there was no blood of a lamb on the door, there was a death of the firstborn son and the firstborn of the livestock. But for every house in the Jewish homes and any, any Egyptians that took place with this as well, where the blood was there, the angel of death passed over that house and there was no death. And it's as this takes place, and they're preparing to leave Egypt. And again, they're leaving in haste. We have chapter 13 and verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me every firstborn male, the first offspring of every womb among the Israelites, the first male, belongs to me, whether man or animal. And so the first we understand from this context that there is this sort of this remembrance that it was the firstborn male that was spared by the blood of the Lamb. And so because of that, as a constant reminder, every firstborn male born in a family was to be given to God because He had spared them. I'm, I'm the youngest in my family. I have an older brother. So my older brother would be the firstborn under this situation who had to be given back to God. How do you give a son back to God? What does that mean? How would you give your son back to God? Did, what happened to all these firstborn sons? Well, as the story develops, you'll notice in the same chapter, is that you go down to verses 11, and he, and he expands upon this. After the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites and gives it to you as he promised on oath to you and your forefathers, you are to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock 
belong to the Lord, the firstborn. And, if it's, and also we'll see the first fruits. When your apple tree brings apples, you take the first ripe apple and you give it to God. God doesn't need that apple, obviously. But it's, it's, it was two things. Number one, the first fruits were, were going to sustain those who worked in the temple. That was their food. They had no land to farm. And it also was an act of faith on your part. If you give the first apple to God, if you give the first grape to God, if you give the first wheat head to God, you are, you are telling God, I have faith that you are going to provide the rest what is needed. God gets the first and God gets the best. And you do so on faith that God is going to provide what you need and sustain you because he has promised to do so. And so we see here that all the firstborn males of your, of your family and the livestock, they belong to, the God, to God. Look at verse 13. Now here's where it gets a little complicated. I'll try and make this as simple as possible. Redeem with a lamb every firstborn donkey. But if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Okay, now, I know. Okay. Redeem every firstborn among your sons. Now, the idea is you would never have to break the neck of a donkey because you would never not, you would never not do that. You would always present the sacrifice of God. So what happens is, if a donkey or a camel is born, those animals are considered unclean. You can buy those back from God with the sacrifice. If you don't, you have to kill it. But of course, you're going to do that, so you wouldn't kill the donkey or the camel. You would do that. And you will notice that you also redeem back, you buy back every firstborn among your sons. What are you buying back? Well, as the story unfolds, what's happening here is God has set aside a group of people in Israel, the Levites, to be his priests, to serve in the temple, to serve in the tabernacle. And the people are to sustain them with their gifts. And what happens is every firstborn son, my brother, firstborn son, would technically belong to God to serve God at the tabernacle. But... God doesn't need him at the tabernacle because in his place are the Levites. Now, my father and his family claimed they were Levites, but there is no way of knowing that. Okay? Every Jew would like to be a Levite. Okay? But if you have a friend named Cohen, or Cohen, that is the Hebrew name for priest, and so that's what they are, Cohens or Cohens. Cohens. And so the idea is the, the priests are already there. They are serving instead of you. But you need to buy back your son from the priesthood by bringing an offering. Jesus was from what tribe? Huh? Judah. He was not a Levite. He was not going to serve in the temple. And his family had to bring an offering to buy him back from God's service to redeem him at the temple. That was supposed to take place on the, on the 31st day after birth. But there was an allowance. You could do it later, but you just had to do it. So on the 40th day of Mary's purification, they came to the temple to do both things. To bring a sacrifice 
to make Mary pure according to Jewish law. And they also brought a sacrifice to buy Jesus back to redeem him from God's service at the temple because the priests are there according to Jewish law. And why, why did God do it? Well, he tells you in the next verse. Verse 14, in days to come, when your son asks you, what does this mean? Why do we do this? Why do we keep doing these things? And the response is, it's a reminder that God brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And he goes on to say, I saved the firstborn with the sacrifice of the lamb. And this is a constant reminder the firstborn belongs to me to remind you that I saved you. This is their salvation story. This is the epical event in Jewish history, the Passover, where God saved them. In uh, Jewish tradition today, this still takes place. Uh, in Jewish tradition today, if uh, an Orthodox family, you'd see on the right there, the, the baby boy is, is placed in a, in a silver bowl. So I was thinking about the Dutch babies there. <laughs> He's placed in a silver bowl. And he's brought to the rabbi. And today, the father would pay five. It was in America, you'd pay five silver dollars. Five, five silver dollars. Because it says you pay, you, you pay five shekels. Uh, we'll leave that up there for a minute. And as, as, you, as we do, I'd like you to turn to, um, to Numbers chapter 18. This will be our last Old Testament passage. To Numbers chapter 18, where this is built a little bit more as to what they're doing here. In Numbers chapter 18, there's going to be something very important here I want you to pay attention to. In Numbers chapter 14, after he's talked about the first fruits, he says, Everything in Israel that is devoted to the Lord is yours. The first offspring of every womb, both man and animal, that is offered to the Lord is yours. But... You must redeem every firstborn son, and I want you to notice this very carefully, and every firstborn male of unclean animals. When they are a month old, you must redeem them at the redemption price set at five shekels of silver, according to the sanctuary shekel, which weighs 20 geras. But you must not redeem the firstborn of an ox, a sheep, or a goat, for they are holy. Sprinkle their blood on the altar and burn their fat as an offering made by fire and aroma pleasing to the Lord. And so today, in an Orthodox Jewish family, a very conservative one, they would bring the child. On the other side, on the left, is a more Reformed tradition where it's a little uh, less formal. But it's the same thing. You bring the child. You bring your five shekels. Today in America, you bring five silver dollars. You pay it to the rabbi. The rabbi could choose to give it back to you. Or what normally happens is given to charity. It's kind of a token amount, five silver dollars. Unless they're real silver, then I guess it'd be worth a little more. But um, are there still silver dollars? There's still coin dollars? Nobody knows. I know there's two dollars. I don't know if you could bring two, two twos and a one. I don't know. Anyway, you got to bring the, the, the coins and you present them to the Lord and you, have, and you have brought back, redeemed your firstborn son. And so this still takes place among Jewish families today of a conservative or orthodox uh, viewpoint. I hope you notice something as we come to the conclusion. I want you to know something very important. <clears throat> You'll notice, and I read in verse 17, there's, there's, a, there's a caveat here. 
You must not redeem the firstborn of an ox, a sheep, or a goat. They are holy. You can buy back your firstborn son. You can buy back the firstborn of the donkey or the camel. But when it comes to the lambs, the goats, and the oxen, you cannot buy them back. You have to kill them and sacrifice them. There is no alternative. You know, if you're if you're a poor person and you've got a small flock of sheep, that firstborn lamb that is born, that would be the most expensive, it would be the most valuable, the one that is, has no blemish, the one that would bring the best return in the marketplace, you have to present that to the Lord as a sacrifice. There is no other way to buy it back. You cannot bring anything else. You cannot bring money or any other animal to buy it back. Why? Because those three classes of animals, or those three particular type or individual animals, the lamb, the goat, and the ox, are considered holy, clean animals. You have to sacrifice them. Now, what does all this got to do with Christmas? Well, this is the end of the birth narratives. We have the story of, of Mary, of them cir- circumcising Jesus, according to Jewish law. Of Mary going through her purification, according to Jewish law. And of them bringing Jesus to the temple to present him and pay five shekels of, of silver to the temple and bind him back so they could take him home Eventually, after going to Egypt, eventually take him home to Galilee where he could be raised in their family as their son. Can you imagine raising the Son of God? Can you imagine there was, an, was there any day that went by that Mary and Joseph didn't remember the visit of the angel? You know, they were entrusted with the care of raising from an infant this young man, the Son of God. This last week while reading the, I was reading the newspapers, the Wall Street Journal again. It's not because I'm a great investor or anything like that. I've mentioned every so often, but I just like that paper, mostly for the human interest and the book reviews and stuff like that. Just watch, you know, I'm not a worldly person. I'm not out, you know. Um, and I got a good deal on it, too. But anyway, so the... the there was an article this week about the, the influence of Spanish painters and, and the theme of death. And there was this picture in there that, uh, that just caught my attention. This famous painting from a Spanish painter from the 1600s. This particular painter ended up dying in poverty and complete oblivion. But he painted mostly religious paintings. And this particular painting is Agnes Day. This painting is called The Lamb of God. And when I saw that picture, it just, I just, I kind of changed focus for my message this week because I saw that picture and I couldn't help but think of the verse that's in your bulletin today I put at the top, or I had the secretaries put at the top. You know, John doesn't give us any birth narratives. John talks about the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. 
And Mark and John go right to the story of John the Baptist. And when John the Baptist sees the Lord Jesus Christ coming to him, he says what? Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. If Mary was standing there, we think Joseph has died. He's not anywhere in the picture in the Gospel stories. If Mary were standing there, she might have recalled the words of the of the old prophet Simeon, the old man that was in the temple that day when they came to bring Jesus to present him to the Lord. And when Simeon snatched that new baby in his arms and took her away, and he, and he, said, and he said to her, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel to be a sign that will be spoken against. The thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. And as she were standing there, when John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God, she would have known what he meant. You see, Jesus, the son of Mary, tribe of Judah, could be bought back with five shekels and taken home and raised. But the perfect lamb could never be bought back. It had to be killed. And when John said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, they would have remembered the passage from Isaiah chapter 53. He came as a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep is silent before those who are about to kill it, he will come. And friends, the, the Christmas story for the family of God, for those of us who claim Christ as our Savior, who claim to be Christians, the Christmas story is not complete without this message as to why He came. The Lamb had to be killed. There was no other way. And it all pointed toward the perfect sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ who came and to give His life and to die for me and for you. To buy you back so you could become a child of God. And that is what Paul says I told you we would, we would conclude and go back to Galatians chapter 4. When the time of fulfillment had come, Christ came. Born of a woman. Born under the law. To redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons. And we know that the implication there is male and female, children, because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. The Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Behold the Lamb of God. 
takes away your sin. In the book of Revelation, he is seen as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. This was all set up before the world was even created, that he would come. And all those Old Testament sacrifices, all those hundreds and hundreds of thousands of lambs and oxen that were slaughtered over the years, it was to point toward the sacrifice of the Messiah for us. We come to the conclusion of another year, and there's a time of introspection as we look back over 2012. Next Sunday we gather, it will be 2013. And we sort of have this time of, of looking back and this time of looking ahead. 2012 brought many, many things into our lives. Many wonderful joys and celebrations and many deep sorrows, losses and discouragements. We don't know what 2013 holds. Lord willing, a year from now, we will be looking back on 2013 and it's the things that you probably have no idea of anticipating that will stand out. But I have good news for you today, friends. The reason we look back on 2012 and whatever God has brought us through, we look back and we know that we have been able to cry out to God, Abba, Father. That's the Bible way of saying Whatever, whatever name of endearment you use for your dad or you used for your father, whether it was Papa or Daddy or Father or Dad, whatever it was, that we have that relationship with God. And I have a message of hope for you today, friends. We do not need to fear 2013 because whatever God brings, allows into our lives, we will have that relationship that we can cry out to God. And He is our Father. Why is He our Father? Because we were bought with a price. We were redeemed by the blood of the spotless Lamb of God who had to be sacrificed and brought us into a relationship with God that we cry out, Abba, Father. If you're here today, if you're here today, my friend, then we're glad you are here. This church is for everyone. This church is not just for Christians. It's the Christian church. But we want everybody to come. Everybody's welcome inside these doors and will be this year. And if you're here today, and maybe this is new information for you, I've given you the simple gospel message. You don't have to join this church. You don't have to be baptized. You don't have to take communion. You don't have to do anything for me or anybody else in this church to be saved and to have God as your Father. All you have to do is by faith acknowledge that you are sinful. God is perfect and holy. We are sinful. I probably don't have to convince you. I don't have to convince myself of that. We all know it. Jesus Christ grew up, lived a life without sin, went to the cross of Calvary, died, was buried, and rose again. And in the book of Revelation, this lamb has lion-like qualities about him. It's a magnificent 
sacrificed lion lamb that has provided our salvation because he was victorious over death. You can receive Jesus Christ as your Savior right where you sit by simply saying yes to God. I acknowledge my need for salvation and I wish to receive Christ's payment for my sin. He did it to buy you back so you could be God's family. Heavenly Father, as we uh, have had this time to meditate on your word, Lord, I just want to give a moment here. If there be a person here today who has never received Christ as Savior, if we begin a new year on Tuesday, what a wonderful thing if they would begin this year as part of your family. That whatever 2013 brings, the joys, the celebrations, the discouragements, the losses, whatever it brings our way, that they would have this new hope and confidence that they could always cry out to you, Father, Dad, Heavenly Father, I'm your child. And I look to you for strength and for hope and for the joy of eternal life. Friend, you can have that today if you would just say yes to God and receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Thank you for coming and joining us for worship today. And we'll leave with that thought. As Paul told Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. Remember Jesus Christ, that wonderful, beautiful name. God bless you and thank you for coming today.